Hi. Hi. It's early, Ben. <laughs> do, you, do you hear it in my voice? <laughs> you got a little vocal, <laughs> vocal fry there. A little vocal fry, a little, uh, little uh, just uh, just having some coffee here. Just a uh, little, little early. It's almost like we got up early to, like, um, w- watch a meteor shower or something, like, some big event. Maybe the royal wedding was on TV. Was and- the royal wedding on TV? I missed it. You've been up. You've been up for so long. You know. You know when you like. Uh, there's things happening, and you get up early. That's today. Things are happening. I got up. We got up early <laughs> to the to do the podcast. Um. So it's uh, it's race day. Did you know that? That's, that's oh, really what- Ben. I'm I'm so behind on everything. It's it, there's a wedding. There's race day. It's early. I'm my dog is barking. I, I haven't had my coffee yet. There's um, a meteor shower. <laughs> I've got some vocal fry or oh, something. Nice, mm. nice. Um, yeah, so uh, so we're recording. So so a couple things happen here um, to let the listeners in on uh, behind the behind the scenes action. Um, on uh, Monday morning, you texted me and said, "Hey, are you ready to do a podcast in a little bit?" And I said, "Oh, I have our podcast scheduled for later today." Um, and, uh, cause my calendar, uh, I put it in the wrong time and then I didn't go back and fix it. And then we, uh, I really, we really wanted to squeeze, uh, a, um, recording in. And so it's, so it's 8am. So I'm sure there's some of our listeners that don't sound like this at 8am. This is just the, the world of, uh, academics, uh, 8am is kind of <laughs> right. We, it's, it's a little too early to, to get the, to get my brain working. Um, but uh wanted to squeeze it in and I can't remember if I told you this when we were texting back and forth but today is the day that I uh leave for uh Columbia South Carolina to run from Columbia South Carolina to um uh Charleston North Carolina no south not Charleston's in South Carolina as well see this is how terrible I am at, at 8 a.m. I hope you I hope you have this figured out by the time you have to start running that would be terrible to end up in the wrong city in the wrong state it would be terrible um so, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm leaving at about, uh, noon today to go, uh, to go do this race and, oh, there's my dog. Um, and, um, it is, uh, it, it's this, I did it last year. We talked about it, um, on another uh, episode, but it is a, uh, relay race that, um, I am doing with a bunch of, um, hot friends and, and other, uh, hockey parents from my kids, uh, hockey team. Um, and we, uh, we started at like 5 AM tomorrow and, uh, we'll run through the night, uh, until uh, mid afternoon on Saturday to get all these, uh, 200, um, miles in. But you, so, have, to, but you have to leave at noon to get staged and ready we gotta to go. Leave it, right. We got to go pick up our packet. So if, in the world of, uh, running races, Don, uh, you need to run without a packet. Oh, you need a packet. You need a packet that's got your numbers. It's got your uh, got your tags. It's got the uh, all the rules. Uh, so we got to go get our packet by five p.m. today. So I I can't remember how much I told you about this whole this whole world, but there are people that actually like run these things all the time, like all summer. This is what they do. So this is like early in the season for these races. <clears throat> And, um, there'll be, there'll be some, some of these teams that they'll do this every weekend now for the next like six or eight weeks. It's pretty, yeah, I know. So I, I mean, we're doing it once and I'm, and I'm good and I'm going to hopefully, uh, feel, feel fine. I I have two 
rel- relatively short legs. Uh, <laughs> that must make it hard to run it does when you have even short though. legs. It's <laughs> 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 pretty go. good for 8.10 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. there, there it is. Um, yeah, I got I to gotta run like uh, two three-mile legs and then a seven-and-a-half-mile leg. So, uh, and so, two short legs is, uh, <laughs> I think he was a rapper from, from Oakland, <laughs> two, two short legs. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so what, that, so for the listeners who are, who are, who are really want to know this, what's the name of the race? I've forgotten. I apologize. It's the, it's Palmetto 200. Palmetto 200. Cause, cause it's, South Carolina. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause of the Palmetto, Palmetto trees, Palmetto bugs, mm-hmm. you know, that I've called cockroaches cockroaches for a long time, but it turns out they're actually called palmetto bugs. Mm, I think they're still called cockroaches. Uh, I, I guess I don't know if it's, it's it says it's uh, seven things you need to know about palmetto bugs. Um, <laughs> here, roach versus palmetto bugs. What's the difference? This is from Orkin.com. <laughs> These are the Orkin people. They some we actually might have someone from Orkin listen to the podcast. The term palmetto bug is a general name commonly used to refer to several species of cockroaches. Um, oh, well, there you be- go. All right. So it's a species. Of, okay. So, right. It's not, a, it's not a cockroach. It's a palmetto bug, but it's a species of cockroach. Fine. Rest my yep. case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stop. You're both right. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, a cockroach species commonly called a palmetto bug is the American cockroach. So, uh, and then there's, I didn't know this, there's a smoky brown cockroach, which sounds <laughs> like some South Carolina barbecue. Uh, uh, it, the, jazz, uh, jazz, jazz singer. Oh. <laughs> the adults are, um, are a dark mahogany color <laughs> and winged as well. So that's, that's, but they lack sunglasses markings on the uh, prothorax and they're sli- slightly smaller. I didn't know about the sunglasses. I guess I'm going to have to look it up. Um, oh goodness! Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we've got uh, we got some Palmetto uh, Palmetto 200 uh, coming up in my future. So so what I what I have today. Um, so last year, let me, uh, give you the the full insight. Last year, I, I packed a lot of things and we mm. took a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so about halfway through the race, uh, sometime, uh, Friday evening, we'll, we will enter part of the, the race enters, uh, Santee state park. Uh, and in Santee state park, we set up like grills and hammocks and everybody just like chilled out. We got out of the vans for a while. Cause you like drive from lay, like from, um, uh, switch over to switch over, um, in, uh, in, in these big vans. And so, um, so when we got there, um, we all had brought food. And so I brought like a whole bunch of hot dogs. People had brought, others had brought, um, uh, chicken. There were some, some steaks. There were some beef burgers. I mean, it was, it was a regular tailgate. Um, and, and Don, do you know what I brought? Um, in addition to, to all those things, beer. Oh, well, yeah, I did bring beer, okay. but um, but also a, uh, Comark, uh, PDT 300. Uh, of course you did. Cause, cause it's, it's all about the food safety with you. It is all about the food. I'm all, I'm very on brand. I am always on <laughs> brand. Um, 
And so, uh, so there's already been multiple jokes, um, about my thermometer, uh, that have, uh, gone across our, our Palmetto 200 group texts. Uh, my, my teammates are very concerned that I may not have a thermometer packed. They want to know if it's easily accessible. There are a lot of youth euphemisms happening as well that I, I dare not share on, uh, on this family podcast, mm-hmm. but let me just tell you that there's a lot of talk about my thermometer right now. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, so we'll, we'll be uh, cooking out, um, tomorrow night and I'll use the thermometer, but okay. So here's, here's a food safety question, um, for you. Mm-hmm. Um, cause this is food safety talk. Uh, one of our, and I, I'm like 99% sure no one listens to the podcast who goes on this uh, trip. So one of, one of the, one of my teammates, um, a husband and wife combo brought two items in a cooler, um, that, that we left Raleigh with on a Thursday and, um, it it, it was still in a cooler on Saturday that, uh, from a food quality standpoint, I think things suffered. And from my, um, very delicate stomach after running, um, multiple miles also suffered. They had a bunch of deli meat and a bunch of hard boiled eggs Mm. in a cooler in a van with like, you know, six smelly people. And every time they would open the cooler, I almost had to vomit yep. just because of the, like the combination Smell. of those two things. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was not, it was not good. But so, um, what I, what do you think about the, uh, the Turkey breast that they had in there, you know, from, from Tuesday or from Thursday until, until Saturday? Would you, would you have any concerns over it? Um, I, I think I would, I mean, I would like some temperature data. Um, Uh, let's say, let's say warm to the touch. Um, pass, pass, (laughs) hard pass. Um, so we, we've, we have talked before on this podcast. We have, we've had questions from listeners who asked about food for camping and we had some really good discussion about, um, hard boiled eggs, uh, that are, that are air in shell, you know, a hard boiled egg that are air dried. You know, I think we're both, uh, you know, on on board with that being okay, um, because it's got the natural protection of the shell. And as long as it's properly hard boiled, it's actually a pretty good, um, shelf stable food. Uh, deli meats, not so much. Um, I actually, I've been running, uh, for a, for a consulting project, I've been running some, uh, listeria models and, um, it turns out, um, listeria grows pretty quickly at low temperatures and it really grows quickly at higher temperatures. And so while I'm sure the demographic of people on your, uh, palmetto, 200, um, relay race is not the demographic of people that are prone to listeriosis or, you know, to the invasive form, the the deadly form. Um, I, I would, I, I, I would take a pass on the warm, uh, to the touch deli meats. Me, yeah, me too. I did take a pass on them. I also took a pass on the smell of the deli meats. Yeah. That's, um, I'm, I, I, I don't know. Were you, as a kid, I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast. As a kid, and, and still to some extent as an adult, but it's better, um, I was very sensitive to smells. I would I would just get nauseous with even the l- merest hint of a bad smell. And it was just, and, and that was just, I was just, I was, I was a sensitive child, Ben. <laughs> you're very, you're sensitive. I mean, you're a sensitive guy now. <laughs> You 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 bloomed from a sensitive child <laughs> into a very sensitive man that I that I know. Um, you know, I I very much had the same um, same issue. I still to to some extent now have a little bit of that. Um, I use it uh, to my advantage sometimes to not take up the, the garbage <laughs> oh. or the trash. Wow. Um, 
also, um, I am called on it almost every time that I, that I try to use that, uh, that device. Uh, I will, I will gag pretty, um, pretty easy. And it's, it's funny. I have, um, when I wake up in the morning, especially if I've underslept, like mm. if I, if I'm, uh, you know, five hours or, or less, um, for whatever reason, my stomach really, um, really gets kind of, I don't know, sensitive and then smells will put me over the edge. Um, at, at that, at that point, uh, I think it used to be worse before I had kids, um, because there are just so many smells you just with have, babies. You have to deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so between like vomit and poop, I think I'm good with those now. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do, I, I do keep like reminding Danny of something like mm. this when, so when the boys, both kids, when they would have like a particularly terrible, like poop in their in their um, diaper, mm-hmm. I would equate that with the smell of soup. Oh. I don't really like soup, <laughs> like a beef barley or like a hearty vegetable. Well, until a few minutes ago, I liked those soups <laughs> pretty pretty well. Thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome. But it was I would walk into their in, you know into their room, so yeah. someone in the middle of the night would be um, you know crying, and oh they filled their diaper, and I opened the door, and it just smelled like. Just smelled like soup, like mm. a deli, hmm. um, and so uh, so I'm still I'm still working on uh, w- working on that uh, issue. Um, <laughs> well, years and years of therapy will probably help. Yes, yeah. Um, hey, so so my dog's barking at mm-hmm. something. Yep. I'm gonna run downstairs very quickly. Uh, well, no, he seems to have stopped. Um, so uh, he's. I think there's food somewhere, and there's no one else in the house. So he uh, may just continue to bark right. for the rest of the podcast. Okay, give okay. me one second. You Let bet. You bet. <clears throat> Insert Jeopardy theme here. Um, while Ben, uh, while Ben goes to look for his dog, I'm going to search the internet for the Jeopardy theme. Like it. <laughs> I made it back before the end of the uh, before the end of Final Jeopardy. Yeah, you you did. Uh, you did. You did not get to hear the the first some bizarre reason Air France commercial um, that, that, <laughs> that YouTube decided I wanted to look at uh, before the Jeopardy theme. But not anyway. a sponsor. No, not a sp- no, no. Um, so uh, real time uh, follow up. My dog is uh, smarter than than <laughs> both of us. Um, he was not barking at food. He was barking at a lack of food in his bowl. Um, cause, yeah, because he's been uh, he's been outside. Um, he's he's done his uh, morning constitution. The uh, normal thing that happens at the end of that is that he comes inside and I feed him. Yep. Um, and so, uh, or someone feeds him, uh, and then uh, no one no one else was here, so I let him back in because I was uh, I was texting you about the start of this at the start of the podcast, and uh, then I came upstairs and started recording, and then he just sat at his bowl for a while. Uh, he came up drumming, with, drumming his little doggy fingers, saying, hmm. "Yeah, yeah." And he's like, "Hey, hey, hey, people! Um, seriously, there's there should be food in my bowl. I'm just gonna sit here and bark." Yeah. So, 
Someone will put some food in here. Yeah. This is where this is where it's supposed to go. Exactly. Someone is not following the schedule. Yeah, my 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 dogs also have a very keen sense of the morning schedule and the during the day schedule. Um, there's a thing now. I work from home enough that there's a thing where like okay, uh, the the little dog goes out, the big dog goes for a walk. I come home, I make I make breakfast. Uh, they or they get fed first, then I make my breakfast, then they get to lick the plates from my breakfast, then I make coffee, then I go upstairs, and when I go upstairs, they both come with me, and they 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 have their little doggy beds that we move we shuffle back and forth um but you know in the day they're in my office and they just settle in and they're like i just walk away on my treadmill and i type and i i talk uh, i talk to dragon dictate and they just sleep in my in my office while i work and that's just the routine but so today there's a change in routine because i'm oh. actually podcasting and i don't know yeah it looks like one of the one of the beds is, is in here but uh, then they were they were barking at something so anyway they're pr- probably not happy no but they did get fed that, that was that happened I, I didn't have as much of a, a breakfast as I would like but you know it's okay I mean you know eight o'clock you, you know you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do man that's right for the people for me for the people um I, that's <laughs> we the people uh so yeah we 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 usually have a, a pretty good routine especially on a on a weekday morning where where both kids leave um so by eight ish and one of them goes to one school and one of them goes to another school and sometimes one of us takes both of them and sometimes they get you know split up and blah, you know, what whatever but the, the dog stuff's all happening before that so he, so by the time eight o'clock rolls around he's usually like just hanging out chilling. So he also, and and I I don't know if I've like explicitly mentioned this on, on the podcast, but he will he gets really jealous when I talk on the phone, in my office or wow. talk like I just talk, and there's no one here, so he'll I I know that he's gonna make an appearance a few times. And I'm gonna have to pet him. I think right. I've like said that a couple of times, but he it is more pronounced. Like he he is just a a terrible baby, mm-hmm. um, and needs all of my attention all the time. Also, um, I'm his best friend and he's mine, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, my, my, my dogs don't get jealous, uh, when, when I talk on the phone, but, um, they do like, usually if I'm on the, like I'm at, I'm at my standing desk right now and I'm, I'm standing, uh, but, but usually I'm walking and they, they steer clear. But if I'm standing on my standing desk, especially the little one loves to come and stand like just right between my legs. Cause I, she, I guess she sort of feels like safe and protected and close to me. So she'll just come and, and then the big one will come and, uh, Gibbs will come and sit like sort of on my toes in, in front of me, sort of under the desk. Cause again, that feels like a, you know, a nice, a nice safe spot where he's sort of in his little doggy cave and, and he's, and he's close to, he's close to, you know, his owner. So uh, he's <laughs> human. So anyway, it's very funny. He's feeling, yeah, he's feeling good, right? He's getting, he's uh, secure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I have to, I, it made me think of the, the, uh, picture that I posted on Facebook, uh, reposted on Facebook of him laying on the treadmill in the sunbeam, looking very fat and, and just uh, pointing out, number one, that he doesn't know how to use a treadmill. And number two, he's very fat, so he really needs to use a treadmill. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but he, he actually he actually has lost a little bit of weight. Yeah, we've been trying to feed him less, so he's slimmed down a little bit. So, But anyway, it's a very, very funny picture of him sitting on a treadmill, uh, laying on the treadmill. Yeah, just, just hanging out. It's a good place yeah, for him. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, dogs. Dogs are funny, right? Like uh, they, uh, Stanley, our our dog, um, is also overweight, and mm. try to walk him, and he runs around, and we try to control his his food that that we give him. But he's also pretty adept at getting extra food that we don't even know. 
um, exists sometimes, or he can like, we've, he can jump onto the table. Um, if you turn your back, he's, and maybe it's just that he's not like, he's just not a good dog. Um, cause he doesn't fully, uh, heed our, our rules. Um, but, but there is like once a week where he, he will somehow get an entire, um, bag of, of mini bagels. And so, <laughs> <laughs> which is not his food. And then you come home and, and it's like, how did, how did he even get these? Like, did he get up on the counter and like open the bread box and pull these out? It's yeah. So, so we do, we do our best, but every time we take them to the, um, to the vet, there, there's some like a, a comment, you're, you know, for, I don't know if it's the same for, um, for your dogs. Um, but we, we get judged because they can't like physically see their ribs. Like there's a layer of fat over top of his ribs. Yeah, well, that's <clears throat> Bianca's. Bianca's fine because she's just like super hyperactive and she runs around all the time. Um, she just ran into my office a few minutes ago because I opened the door up again. But um, yeah, Gibbs, um, he's was he was down five pounds, and they said, yeah, he could probably use, use stand to lose another another five pounds. Um, and yeah, you you can't you can't see his ribs, and he's also very good about. It. He just really really wants that food, and if you don't, you know, he'll even to the point he, they won't. <clears throat> They won't jump up and take the food because uh, they get they get in trouble if they do that. And so, um, but but they will be. And depending on the person, like like Gibbs knows not to do it with me. But like for example, uh, my son was having dinner with us the other night, and um, Gibbs was just like, "Okay, oh, I'm gonna. This is a new human, you know, relatively new human. I can work right. him." And he just was like jumping up, you know, putting his feet on the chair um, while while uh, my son was trying to eat. And uh, you know, and it's like, get down. You're not. You know, you're not supposed to do that. So, but he won't do it with me because like I, I yell at him if he does. So, but yeah, but right. they're very, yeah. very, and again, they're very like, okay, well, now I know you, you've had your breakfast. Now you usually let me lick the plate, you know, with the, with the, the, the oil from the eggs and, you know, and, and it's like, oh yeah, I usually do let you do that. But, but, but he, he will just, but he's pretty good about it. He'll just stand there and, oh, or, or like uh, in the evening I'll finish eating my salad. And again, there's usually some olive oil in the bottom of the bowl and he'll look at me, just sit there and just look at me just like very intently, just like stare. You know what? Yeah. Stare, you know what's happening, right? Stare, you know, you know, yep. you give me the bowl. You always give me the bowl. You need to give me the bowl. Where's the bowl? <laughs> I can see that running through his head, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the longer it is, he's like, wait a second, he forgot. He forgot. We always do this. And, some, and sometimes he'll do this thing where he'll just very gently pick his foot up and put it on your knee like, hey, hey, hi. <laughs> remember? Remember? What you're supposed to do now, remember? It's very, it's very cute. So See, he's, that's he's, how not, get- he's not he's not aggressive with that, but it, and it works because you know eventually yeah. it works. So, so he knows that's how they get it. Yep. That's, oh, nice. Um, so uh, I want to tell you one thing that I did this week mm-hmm. um, that doesn't have to do about food safety, and then I want to start talking about food safety. Yes, we um, so I um, uh, on the weekend um, cut down a a tree and a limb that was overhanging my, uh, offense. Uh, I I'm reminded of this cause I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, North Carolina, I don't know if you're aware of this, but every once in a while we have like hurricanes that come mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a couple of hurricanes come through this year and, and in, in one of those hurricanes, a dead limb from one of our trees kind of like fell, but not far enough down to hit the ground mm-hmm. high enough that it was like wedged in between a couple other trees and it was over over our fence, like the the base of it was in our neighbor's. Well, it's still in our yard because the people who built our house built the fence five to eight feet in from the property line mm-hmm. for some bizarre reason. 
Um, and, uh, so, so our neighbor was like, Hey, you might not know this, but your tree on our side of the fence is uh, probably going to fall and, and break your, your fence. Um, you might want to do something about it. So, so I, I spent, wait, so, um, so you see the pronouns got confused, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. in the middle of that. So who, who, who owns the tree? I, I think we own the tree and you own the fence. Yep. But okay, it is but, but, on the. It's but, on the oh, but it's on the side. but it's on the neighbor's side yes. of the fence that you can't usually see, correct? Because because of the fence, but because your the previous person put the fence sort of on the wrong side, yeah. You, it's it's yard it's yard that is effectively your yard and one hundred percent your responsibility. But the neighbors have a better view of it. it yep, you okay. you have nailed it for the yes for the for the listeners. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, and and it's in a place. Or was in a place where we have a whole bunch of bushes as well okay. that are about like um, I'm in the second story there above that. Like these are tree bushes, right? So you can't. So it's it's really kind of hard to see. But from their side, it was really obvious. Mm-hmm. Like this limb is broken and snapped. Yeah. So so they told us a while ago, um, but hockey season and I didn't I didn't do anything. And then so Sunday was the day that I was I was going to do this or that I that I did it. And the the idea is we have a we have a chainsaw, um, and I'm I'm going to ch- cut it down, uh, but I'm going to get high enough to cut it so it falls on the um, on our side of the fence, and. I, I physics, I guess, continues to not be my thing. Like I, I, I had a, a vector diagram, something that looked like it might have been created in a Kevin Smith movie. Um, I would like with a here's a plan on how to how to get somebody, like a wily coyote kind of thing. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking uh, Roadrunner and Wiley yeah. Coyote, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so I get up on um, on a ladder, and I am. Trying, I, I've I've watched multiple YouTube videos about how to cut trees, because um, I this this is how people learn, it's how I learn. Um, there's not a master class on on tree cutting, but there are lots of reputable, what seems like reputable sources, like the people that make the chainsaws. They also make really good instruction videos. So I'm like cutting a wedge in the bottom of it so it doesn't like pin the, um, the, the bar of the, uh, saw, um, I'm being really careful to do it in a way where the tree itself doesn't fall on me and which is, I'm trying to predict, but they don't give a lot of good instruction about like what happens when the tree is pinned inside of a, another tree. So here, so, so Ben, I just want, I just want to say that I have gone to YouTube and I have typed in tree cutting videos and I want to read to you, um, what it says in the search bar. Okay. It says <laughs> Tree cutting videos, tree cutting videos, YouTube, tree cutting video accidents, tree cutting uh-huh. video clips, tree cutting video download, tree cutting video machine video, funny tree cutting videos, tree cutting techniques videos. So, so you're looking for tree cutting. Oh, right below that is dangerous tree cutting videos. Okay, um, so so tree cutting techniques videos. You have to look at a lot of stuff before you get to that one, and some of them are either funny or or would inspire a little bit of fear. <clears throat> yes, yes, and I will send you one that also came. <laughs> In my, in my search that is called tree cutting fails and idiots with chainsaws too. Oh God. Yeah. So I, I Don, I was the idiot with a chainsaw. Um, I, it all worked out fine, but there were multiple times and, and this is, 
this was like my um so so my my lovely wife uh danielle who i've mentioned here thinks that all of our listeners are shut-ins although she listens to more podcasts than i do um she she was like no you can you can do this like you're gonna be able to do this and i'm literally on a ladder with one foot on top of my fence with a chainsaw cutting like a 2000 pound piece of wood above my head thinking this is how i go this is like Mm -hmm. either i'm gonna fall and like impale myself on this, uh, on this fence or the chainsaw is going to like spin out of control and cut my head off. Like I, I had all of these, it, it was, it was like everything that, that you would see in tree cutting fails and idiots with chainsaws too, I think was, was about to happen. Uh, and, and so I went, went back to the, to the YouTube video and I was like, I think I've got this. And, uh, Three and a half hours later, um, I, I uh, was able, without losing a limb, without falling once, to uh, get this this tree out of my, uh, you know, tree that had fallen out of another out of another tree. Um, but it made me realize. And this is I'm where, sorry, I'm just playing the. Oh Jesus! Yeah, sorry. I don't think I don't think you want to watch them. Um, yeah. Well, not while uh, not while I'm recording. That would be unprofessional. <laughs> that would be horribly unprofessional. Um, so. I, this is where things get into food safety. Uh, so people, I, I, as I'm doing this, I think, you know what? There are literally people I can, I can call to do this kind of thing. And they do this all the time. They are professionals in the tree cutting realm at, at varying degrees of professionalism. But, but people actually know how to do this. And I kind of thought as I was there, this is like me just starting a food business thinking, oh, I should be able to just like make food because I'm good at making you know pot pies and selling it. Like there's, there's a difference between uh, someone on, their week, uh, on the weekend cutting down a tree and a tree cutting company. And it wasn't like super obvious until I was in on a ladder eight feet above the ground holding a chainsaw thinking, this is really stupid. Um, but I continued to do it mainly because I was concerned that um, that Danny, like if I came down from this, my perch, um, that she would be like, well, you you've been you've been promising to do this for months and now you're like deciding that it's too hard to do. Um, and so I kind of like I got shamed into uh, almost losing an arm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, if only if only that had happened, that really would have shown her. <laughs> I would have shown her, right? I, I it was uh, I it was not it was not my proudest moment, and I I had a level of frustration because I couldn't like figure out how to make this happen, and then I like got to hatch it out. Like I mean, there's a lot of stuff that that went on, um, and I, I won't spare you. I'll spare all the rest of the the details, but it just made me think like this is this is exactly the same thing I tell people not to do when it comes to food. Like yeah. Yep. Right. And then I'm like, and here I am doing it because what, yeah, what, why, why, why yeah. am I doing it? Yeah. So, right. so a couple, a couple of things on, on, on tree cutting stories. Um, yeah. So we've, we've had, we've had a couple of, uh, trees, uh, taken down on our prop. Well, one, I guess just one, well, yeah, one, one, I think I took down myself cause it was, it was just a, a tiny tree. Um, but we had a big, massive, uh, pine tree that just was not, not well placed and not well thought out. And we had a company come in and do that. And then the other thing, uh, and just because it involves being a little bit on a ladder is, um, we have some holly bushes that we, we planted when we landscaped around the house when we first moved in and they were nicely sized, but of course we didn't, 
prune them as you should every year. And they, they were starting to grow into the picket fence a little bit. And so uh, I called that same company back and they were happy to send somebody out. And I, uh, yeah, I, I will not, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, but, but I, it's like, it's worth any amount of money to, to not put yourself at risk. And I, you know, and the other thing too, that I've, that I've, t- I have a company now, uh, to clean the gutters and I, oh, I pay them too much. It's a, they're, I'm not really that happy with them, but you know, they, they come and they do it and it's fine. Um, and I don't get up on a ladder and have to do it. Right. And so, uh, and, and cause I, cause for sure, I don't want the gutters to overflow cause that leads to flooding in the basement and stuff like that. So, and then the, the last thing I have to say as a cautionary tale, and it's a sad story, uh, a colleague of mine, an extension colleague of mine, um, who used to cut trees on the weekends for people like, you know, professionally, like this was a guy who knew what he was doing. Um, he died, right? Like oh, a tree, a tree fell on his head and, and he died. Like he was in the hospital, but it was just, it was really, it was really bad, right? It was like really, really bad. And he died. So, so like, yeah, don't, um, yeah, don't, 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 don't be careful out there, kids. Um, this is, uh, this, you, they can kill you. Trees, trees are surprisingly heavy. Um, Crazy heavy. Yeah. Cra- like they're really, yeah. really heavy. Like they look all light and airy and they sort of float around, you know, uh, when the breeze blows through the branches, but man, they are really, really really heavy. So well, be careful. Yeah. That was, I mean, so the, the only real casualty we had in this, in this process was one of the slats of our fence got hit as it, uh, as this branch fell down it away from me. Like when I, once I finally figured out what to do, um, it was, it, it was fine, but it like hit the top of the slat and like snapped the slat, mm-hmm. like, and it came down with, with a force. And then once I tried to, so then I could cut like little pieces off of it. Um, it, you know, you, you kind of forget like a, a, a three foot, uh, branch or piece of a branch that's, that's maybe like, I'm, I'm trying to visualize the, um, the, the diameter of my hand. Let's say it's like nine inches, 10 inches. Um, that weighs like, you know, 30 or 40 pounds. Yeah, yeah. And and now I've got like, you know, 30 feet of this thing, um, falling on my head. So I, yeah, it was, it, I, it, it was like a really like interesting, like thought around risk where I wouldn't put myself into this, into a risky position around food safety. Cause I know that world, this, I really couldn't judge. Like I knew what I was doing was, was potentially risky, I didn't know how risky and I, and then I, once I was in it, I was like, oh, well I should be able to finish this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not like, so just like, just being, I guess, um, risk averse in certain things does not make you make good decisions in all things. (laughs) No, especially if you get into things that are outside your area of expertise, right? I mean, it really is, uh, yeah, it really is. It really can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So, yeah, well, uh, absolutely. So, Let's move on to, to some food safety, and, and i i want to I want to start with something. Um, we've we've got a little bit of feedback, but I, I want to start with something um, that's a little, I guess, a little bit um, a little bit somber and a little bit happy. Um, the the somber part is that um, I, you know, friend friend of the podcast who um, you and I have talked about a bunch, um, uh, Pete Snyder, uh, passed away right after a couple of days after we recorded the last episode. And, um, the, I, the, the, som- the, the somber part, or I guess the sad part is, and, and is that he, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of terrible anytime. I think, um, um, uh, someone, someone passes away, someone who means so much, not, you know, not just personally, but to the field of, of food safety. And, and it makes you like, think about uh, mortality and all, uh, and all those, those types of things. Um, 
And so um, it, it was, uh, I, I'm going to like read a, a little bit from um, a message we got from um from Pete's son, Scott, um, he just, uh, said, I'm writing to let you know that our dad, Pete Snyder passed away peacefully at his home Friday, March 1st. Um, as you may know, dad battled Parkinson's d- disease for over 10 years. Um, he began his work in the food service industry in the late 1950s while serving in the U S army in 1974, he became an associate professor of food science and nutrition at the university of Minnesota. Then in 1982, he founded the hospitality Institute of technology and management food safety training, education and consulting firm. He was passionate, lifetime proponent of safe food handling, has a method of food preparation for organizations around the world. Dad especially uh, enjoyed photography, travel throughout Europe, and the music of Dave Brubeck. One of his favorite places to visit was the city of Kokenhof uh, um, in Holland to visit the world-famous tulip fields and gardens. By our county, he made seven trips there. Below is a photo he took during one of those trips in 2004. Um, and then there was uh, you know, some, some more information about a memorial service, and we'll link to um, Pizza Obituary in our um, in our show notes, but there was a couple things that, that popped out. I didn't, um, so I'm, I'm not a I'm, I'm not a, a jazz uh, aficionado. I don't know much about jazz at all, so I didn't know who who Dave Brubeck was. So I, I looked it up. Um, I looked him up uh, on uh, Wikipedia and then and then listened to a little bit of uh, some of his stuff. He was an American jazz pianist and composer, um, considered one of the foremost uh, exponents of cool jazz. Um, so I didn't know I, I didn't know that Pete was a jazz fan. Um, it, it's you know sometimes you, you get these little insights into people's lives. Um, you know we know people through their food safety world. And, and, you know, as you spend time with people, you get to know sometimes a little bit about their, um, you know, their hobbies and their interests. And and we all talk about our, our families and, and what, what we do, um, when we're not doing food safety, but it's, um, but it, it made me, you know, it kind of made me smile a little bit thinking about Pete just hanging out, uh, listening to jazz. Um, and, and I, I say that not like, not really knowing Pete super well, other than a, a guy that I um, that I conversed with um, uh, quite a bit when I was a gra- starting when I was a graduate student, and then every time we saw each other, we we chatted a little bit about um, you know uh, about my you know my kids, and and he he followed he followed the blog and, and other things that I, that I posted. But you know there there are times when you just don't know. Um, you just don't know people very, very well. Um, you know, you see them, but you just don't, you don't know what they do, um, you know, all the time. And I think about this, this is going to sound weird, but Don, I, I like, I almost always, if I'm not in my office, I almost always wear a baseball hat. <laughs> <laughs> Like all the time, and and it's not something like as I'm driving places, I'm like, you know, the people that that I that I know from the food safety world, they don't know that I do. Like this is me. Like I want to wear a <laughs> I want to wear a hoodie and a baseball hat all the time. And every time I run into someone when I'm like wearing a baseball hat, they're like, I look at that look, like, oh wait, who are you? And it's weird. Like you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the person that you are away from your professional world is is as often who you see yourself as, right? Like, because you like food safety is, is definitely something that, that we do. And it, and I'm, when I'm wearing a baseball hat, I'm very much thinking about food safety, but I'm not <laughs> acting the full part. And it's and like, so that this jazz thing made me think about like, I didn't, um, about my baseball hat, <laughs> like in, in my <laughs> yes. I'm going to say something like, and you like to wear a baseball hat for those of you who didn't know. <laughs> uh, but um, any, anyway, I, uh, I wrote a blog post that will, that will link, link to, to yep. I, I told a, um, a brief story about how 
I, um, you know, connected with Pete, um, really early on. Um, and, and basically I'd put some stuff out, um, uh, a food safety info sheet or wrote an op-ed or posted something on food safe, the, um, the, the formerly amazing, uh, listserv and discussion group that out there that, that I met Carl Custer through and, and used to post on, um, and Pete was a, was a real force on there. And so I posted something and then he emailed me, um, and then I posted something else and then he emailed me again. Um, and then he, he was like, you know, basically get your, get your facts right. Not in a, not in a gruff way, but just kind of like, look, you need to know you're putting this stuff out there and people are going to listen to you. You got to do it right. And then I did something else a third time. And then he just was like, what's your number? And then he called me <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was like, I, I, I kind of went back and, and rethought about that conversation. I don't remember too many of the details. I just remember that all we talked about was food safety. And and it was like we he wanted to he wanted to just share like, okay, you're a grad student. and and not like you're a grad student and I know a lot because I'm around you're a grad student and we need people like you in this field, but we also need people like you to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and and that was our conversation. He's like, and so here it is. And, and like, this is, this is what I want you to think about when you're doing this stuff. And then he's like, okay, goodbye. And it was really like, <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it's so, yeah. and that it mattered so much. And, um, and so I, I hadn't seen him in a few years and I was really sad to, um, you know, to, to hear about his passing, but, but it's, it's, it made me think like, uh, and you know, we a few episodes ago we talked about like connecting with students and doing mentorship. It made me think even more like how important that little like twenty minute phone call was for me. And probably when and after like I shared this and um, and and Scott um, uh, posted it uh, on a couple of places and including Pete's Facebook page and on Twitter that other people had like really similar conversation like really yeah. similar experiences. Yeah. And so it's like he was probably doing this all the time. And, and it didn't like it, 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 it mattered probably more to me than it did to him in, in a, um, you know, in a roundabout way. So, yeah, yeah, no. And it was, it was good. And I, I, I the, the Dave Brubeck, uh, comment, um, surprised me. The, the photographs of tulips in Holland surprised yeah. me. These are things you just don't know. Honestly, Ben, the baseball hat <laughs> surprised me. And we talk, <laughs> we talk about our personal lives here on the podcast. And so I think people, and, and you guys do to a certain extent on the blog. And so obviously anybody who thinks about you knows that you, 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 you play hockey and your kids play hockey and you coach hockey, right? Like, so, so those aspects of our lives are exposed to people, I think because of the podcast and because of the blog and things like that. But, um, but it was really interesting to hear those things about, about Pete and yeah. And, and, and I, the things that I, so there's two, there's two things that I always think about when I think about Pete and, and number one is, so we would, we would go to these, you know, we go to these meetings and, you know, usually cocktail hour, people are having a, having a beer or wine or something. And Pete, Pete always drank Diet Coke. So I'll always remember Pete drinking yeah. his Diet Coke. And the other thing, and this is even before um, Merlin Mann and the hipster PDA, Pete always had index cards and uh, a pen or a pencil in his pocket. With I think he had a little pocket protector, too. He's a real super yep, like yep. MIT nerd. And he had on those on those uh, index cards, he had written in tiny, tiny print, like notes, like to, things he wanted to follow up with you about or things that he wanted to tell you about. And he just was like, I just, just, that just blew me away. So anyway, this was a guy who really, who really cared about food safety and I'm glad, um, 
uh, yeah, I'm glad we had a chance to know him. And uh, yeah, and I'm sorry he's he's passed, but um, you know he had a good he had a good life, and he he impacted a lot of people. I mean, and and and, and of course with his with his passing, uh, a lot of people came out to to tell stories and say things about him, and it was really uh, it was really nice. So yeah. It- it, it it was it was it was cool to read about other other things and um, other experiences people had out there. And one one of the things that made me made me think like I, I you had had uh, interacted with his son Scott or uh, maybe a little bit or um, I, I, remind me on on, on that um, in a second. But I didn't I didn't really know um, you know we often don't know each other's uh, others families um but it was it was cool like i just put something out there because it was important to me like i just wanted to share the story and then scott was like um we we exchanged some uh some uh, dms on on twitter and he was like you know it, it's it's cool to hear about things like this about your about your dad that that like you didn't, you you don't even know about, right? Like you don't like, like you, we don't often share these impacts back to the families of the people we know. Right. Like, yeah. So 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 he, you didn't know about Dave Brubeck and, and, and tulips in Holland, but he didn't know about, uh, you know, Pete's son didn't know about Pete's, you know, interactions with you. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, you know, I, I often, um, you know, often think about what our, what our legacies are, um, when, when we leave, when we move on and, and, and stuff. And, and it's that kind of thing that, that you hope like you have an impact in someone's life and that, that like the people that mean the most to you, like in many of our cases, our families are, are, you know, become aware of that somehow. So it was, it was, it was very heartening to be part of a little, just a little slice of that. Um, so yeah. So, so anyway, like, like I said, a little bit somber, but also I think a, a celebration just on, on how, how important, um, someone like, like Pete is. Um, also I, uh, you and I exchanged a couple of texts and, uh, uh, connected, um, just briefly with, uh, with David Tharp at, at IAFP. And, um, I'm really interested in, um, in the next little while, just trying to, to come up with a way to, to honor Pete and whether that's, a um, you know, raising money for uh, a scholarship or endowment or, or whatever it is, um, through IAFP, the, you know, one of the organizations that he really, um, really valued. Um, and, you, and we know this because, um, in his obituary, IAFP was explicitly mentioned as a, the IAFP foundation was explicitly mentioned as, you know, one of the places to make a, um, a donation to, um, it, it was, um, uh, I'd like to, um, I'd like to do something, um, just, just so we, we, you know, we keep that, like you think about our, all of our other awards and things that are named after people through, through IAFP and our, you know, important organization. Um, every time I'm sitting at the banquet and I hear that name and I didn't know any of the people that these things are named after, I'm like, Oh, what did these people do again? And then, mm-hmm. you know, it, it kind of gives you a, a chance to, to have that, that memory, um, live on and be transferred to others. So, so I don't, I, like I said, I, this just briefly talked to, talk to David and he said, um, uh, that we, we can follow up in the next couple of weeks. So I don't have any details on it. Just that it's something that if people are interested in that, um, uh, shoot us some feedback or, or send me an email message and, and I'll keep it on the list. And as soon as we figure out what we, what, what it might look like and, and how we do something, then I'll uh, share that information. 
Cool, 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 cool. So I want to I want to move to something that is uh, I guess it, you could say it's food safety related. And I, so I sent uh, I sent a tweet out last night um, that um, about uh, laws, sausages, and uh, cable TV news um, uh, are like three things that you don't ever want to see be made. Because I got a phone call. I got a, yeah. I got a phone call around. A little after five um, from a number in New York City, and I, I just hit decline. Um, and then the same number called back. It's like, oh, well, this might be important. So I took the call, and it turns out it was a guy that I'd talked with before uh, from uh, Fox 5 uh, News who wanted to do a, a Skype interview on the environmental working group, uh, the 2019 Dirty Dozen. Have you? Uh, have oh, you, yeah. Have you heard oh, about yeah. this? Have you, have I have. read this? So we, I don't want to link to the uh, EWG website. You can find it yourself. We will link to um, uh, a story, which is the top hit when I first searched for it. Um, from uh, the Packer, uh, which is a produce um, uh, a pr- produce uh, uh, magazine slash website, um, and uh, basically it says it gives the uh, dirty. And I agreed to do this interview before I realized what it was really about. It turns out it's about pesticides, um, and so uh, this what what the Environmental Working Group does is they look at. USDA data, data that USDA picks, publishes every year, and they do kind of their own analysis of that data, and they come up with the dirty dozen for 2019, which are the the quote unquote dirtiest uh, pieces of produce, the, pro, the items of produce that have the most uh, pesticides associated with them, and then um, they also come up with a clean 15. Uh, so you know the implication being don't eat these things, but do eat these things. Um, and I did a little short little Skype interview. I don't know how much of it is going to uh, uh, make it onto the air, but I, I thought I would take a minute and talk about this because I. Um, you know, pesticides, when I, when I started at Rutgers, um, Alar and Apples had just, you know, 60 Minutes had just published their Alar and Apples piece, and people were really concerned about pesticides. And one of the, the gratifying things we've, that I've seen over the last 30 years is that there's been a move to focus on microbiological risk, which I think the risk experts, both the toxicologists and the food microbiologists, would agree are the real risks. Um, but... Um, yeah, so I've got some things to, to, to say about this list and how they came up with it. Do you have any comments before I do that? No, no. I mean, other than, um, the, this, this came, this topic came across our family and consumer science, um, listserv in our state where we have a bunch of, um, you know, conversations about, um, like what, you know, something, something new that's, that's happening and basically, you know, any emerging issues. Right. So, so basically, um, as I kind of read a little bit about this, the question became, well, what is, what's North Carolina state cooperative extensions stance on this, right? Like that's one of the things that, that continues to like, that's the way that we, we kind of get asked about it. Like, well, what do we, what are we going to say about it? And what's our, what's our stance? Um, and, and it's a really like, um, difficult question to answer because there's no real, like, I don't, I don't really have a stance on anything. Right. Like there's, there's no, um, there's, there's no like 
official words from from the world of of NC State Cooperative Extension or any extension about it. Um, but what we what we do want to know is be what we do want to have is, is is some preparation for when someone gets a question about it. What should what what should we tell them about the list? Well, the um, how how the list was derived, what the limitations are of it, and what the goal is um, of it. And and that's not that's not the answer that that I think um, our our agents are often looking for, or um, other people that are communicating food safety or, or who are who don't see this every year or, or comes up every year and, and they they forget about it because I think what they want is like oh yeah you should really like follow this list and don't eat kale um, or no no don't worry about it at all and it's and it's not it's neither of those things right like it's not it it's not the um, it, it's, it, it's, it, it, there's no, it's a nuanced conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, so I, I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I would be less nuanced. I would say that I, personally, I am going to make zero changes to my eating practices based on the information on this list. Okay. Um, I, uh, 99% of the fruits and vegetables tested by USDA, they found levels of pesticides that were below the benchmark dose. And the benchmark dose is basically the level that risk managers have set as being quote unquote safe, right? We know there's no such thing as zero risk. We know that detection technologies get better and better. So we're going to keep finding pesticides, um, you know, no matter what, um, because that's the way the, the science uh, works. Um, so I'm going to make zero changes to my, to my eating behavior because of this. And the other thing I want to say is that if you look at the list, you could have, especially the difference between the dirty dozen and the clean 15. And this was one point that I, I made in my interview that I hope comes out. Basically, the way USDA generates their pesticide data, the way they collect the data is they prepare the food as it would be prepared at home. And then they test that. Right? right. So right. it's obvious if you look at the clean 15 list, it's obvious why avocados, sweet corn and pineapples are at the top of that list. You know why? Because we don't eat the outside of avocados. We don't eat the outside of sweet corn. We don't eat the outside of pineapples. Right. Or Those, kiwi. Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. Or you, cantaloupe. Yeah. You can go down the yeah. list. Right. Uh, a cabbage. You probably peel it. Right. I mean, so. Um, you know, uh, papayas, same, same thing. Right. So, so it's, it's just absolutely, I mean, it's, it's stacking the deck in favor of those things. Um, uh, uh, whereas pestis, whereas uh, strawberries, um, well, you know, guess what? It's, um, you know, it's, it's right there, uh, at the top of the list because guess what? They don't have a a hard husk from the, uh, that you peel off the outside. Right. Um, so I would hate, and again, it's sort of like the, with this, the E. coli spinach outbreak from 2006, people use that as an excuse to stop eating spinach. That's a really bad idea, right? Like all, these are all healthy foods and, and people, and we know, we know from, from, you know, CDC's own data that people don't eat enough fresh fruits and vegetables in this country. And so, you know, don't, don't pay any attention to this list, eat more fresh fruits and vegetables and, and don't, and I would say, so I give it essentially zero, uh, zero credence, um, because because we need we know people need to eat more more of these things not less and anything that gets them to eat less is is not a good thing in my opinion. Yeah, I, I like I totally agree. I think the the nuanced part that I'm that I'm thinking about is are there can people find find pesticides if we look for it? Yes, and you I mean you hit on it with with your comment of we're going to get better 
at finding things, the better the technology is. And, and the more, um, uh, sensitive that our, that our assays are when we're starting to look for parts per trillion as opposed to parts per million and parts per billion. So, so it's going to, it's going to be, it, it's going to be there. And I think there is a nuanced conversation there mm. because it, it has to do with, um, uh, understanding the difference between, um, or, or at least helping to communicate the difference between, um, a very, 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 very small trace amount of X and what that means over the course of eating, you know, a year's worth of kale versus in, in higher doses. And I, and I don't like, I really do think that people struggle with that. And, and I had, um, I had a conversation late, late last night in my hockey dressing room, um, about, like food safety stuff. Like I got, someone got me all, all like fired up in, in the world of food safety. Not, not in like I was, I was angry, but, but they asked about like, it started with a question of, um, Ben, what do you think about FDA not doing a really good job in food inspections because they don't have resources? And, and the question was like food inspections related to meat. And I was like, Whoa, Hey, Hey, let's talk about this as I, as I drink my, um, my Coors light. Um, and, and it was like, you know, let, let me, let, let's unpack all of the, the question that you had there about the, the, the nuance and the, and let's, let's be correct. It's like, it's not FDA that regulates those things. In fact, we, we have a really, ro- USDA has a really robust system when it comes to regulation from an inspection standpoint, like the, the, the guys in my dressing room who remained as I pontificated on this, um, uh, were seemed kind of amazed, like that there is um, an inspection regime that includes an inspector there during during slaughter um, when in operation, and 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 it you know we then talked a little bit about like ranges of bacteria on meat, and it's and it's analogous to this to this dirty dozen clean fifteen because you know the you know, one of the guys was like yeah but you can find you can find bacteria on, uh, on, on chicken. Like it's going to be there. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be there. And sometimes it's a pathogen and sometimes it's not. And maybe it's like 30% it's going to have Campylobacter. Maybe it's like 80%. Like there's a lot of variability, but there is a nuance to the conversation that, it, and, and, and I, I don't want to like, I a hundred percent agree with your, your comment of like, this list doesn't change how I eat. No, it, yeah, not at all. But but I think we do need to to step into having the conversation about how and why it might be fraught with problem, and and it's just the like the intricacies of of what you and I see every day and take for granted of of understanding. Um, the 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 guys on my hockey team, which is where I take all of my cues from, mm-hmm. uh, don't they don't they don't really know. And but it was a real like that that follow up question was well, what about Food Inc? Is that like legit? Is that like a legitimate documentary? And it's and I use the word nuance um, with it. I was like, well, I mean. It's not factually incorrect. It just isn't everything, and you can't do everything in in a one hour and forty five minute documentary. And so there's so it's it, part of it is trying to simplify it down to tell a story, and and making decisions based on a on a story that that is simplified down. It might be something that that people want to want to do, but it doesn't give you all the information on on how to make you know on what what risk is and and whether. Um, 
whether you should or shouldn't change your eating habits. And, and, and like, you know, like you started off with in this conversation, I think people are ultimately just looking to us to say, does this affect you? Are you going to stop eating kale? Right? Like maybe they don't want all the, the nuance, um, of it. And, and, you know, but, but I think it's, it's imperative that we get, that information out there in other, you know, in lots of forms. You're not going to do that in your 15 second soundbite. Um, right, and neither, right. neither am I. Right. Right. And, and I'm, 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 I, like I said, my, my res- response is I am not going to change what I eat. I don't eat kale now. I'm not going to eat kale in the future. Cause I don't particularly like kale. I mean, yeah, if, if it's, if it's in something, it's properly prepared, but raw, raw kale is disgusting in my opinion. I, I, you know, I'll eat, I'll eat spinach. I'll eat romaine. Uh, you know, I, I like, uh, I like, uh, you know, cabbage and, and coleslaw, you know, things like that. Like that's, that's fine. I'll get my, my roughage that way. Uh, but it's, it's not going to be from, from kale necessarily. So, um, Oh, one thing I, I do want to do, and maybe we can, uh, when I write this up for the show notes, I'll, I'll put it at the front. Um, I do want to mention that you and I are going to be doing a special edition of Food Safety Talk um, one week from today on March 28th, um, and that is uh, entitled Food Safety Talk Explores the Food Safety Zone, and that's being sponsored by AFI, the American Frozen Food Institute. Um, and so it's going to be a special uh, webinar that's also going to be uh, in our podcast feed. So you don't need to do anything special. It's going to show up in our podcast feed no matter what. But if you want to listen live and you want to see us actually do a webinar and, and actually watch watch me um, manipulate um, Safari <laughs> and, and, yeah. and watch what happens uh, behind the scenes as we do a podcast, um, we're going we're gonna to do that. So, um, so that's uh, on um, March 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern, and we'll, we'll link to that uh, at the top of the show notes, and we'll, we'll put a little blurb in the top of the show notes, even though we talked about it here in the middle of the show. Yeah, and if you if you lose that link um, in in the next week, I'm sure we'll we'll tweet about it and yep. and post in lots of different spots um, as well. Yeah, so it's kind of a, kind of a cool um, you know new thing for us. Let's let's focus on one one topic, um, one one broad topic, right? Like we're not we're not going to be um, uh, you know we we may have some some uh, updates on my tree cutting, but. Uh, <laughs> But we'll, uh, but yeah, we're we're gonna really do a deep dive into frozen, um, frozen foods and talk about safety and and like you said, go through a, um, Afi's um, website on frozen food, um, uh, food safety and and really just just dive into it. So I'm excited for it because it's a, uh, it's, it's something cool, cool and new and um and yeah, check out the check out that link. Thanks thanks for uh, reminding me because uh, I knew we were gonna talk about that, but I forgot to put it in. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what, what do you want to do? You want to do some listener feedback? We, we, we're an hour in and we've just started uh, really talking about food safety. Do you have anything you want to talk about besides listener feedback? I, I, so yeah, I mean, there's one thing that I want to talk about besides listener feedback. Um, and maybe let's do that first. Um, so the, a real, I got a, um, a, 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 uh, you know, off, offline, um, a direct text message from, from someone who will remain nameless saying, Hey, have you seen this yet? Um, so it's kind of listener feedback, I guess. Uh, and it was a link to, uh, MMMW, MMWR from last week, uh, an article entitled notes from the field, botulism outbreak associated with home KNPs, New York city in 2018. Um, and I had not, and Thursdays are always my MMWR. MWR reading days because that's when it comes out. And, um, you know, 40% of the time there's some great food safety story that we can learn from in there. And so, so this was a really kind of an interesting, um, article to me, 
Um, and I, it raised the, the article itself raised a, a few questions, which we're going to pose here. And then I'm going to follow up with, um, with the lead author, uh, to, to get some clarification. And so here's the story, June 6, 2018, 1:30 PM, the New York city department of health and mental hygiene was notified of three related women who had arrived at a hospital four hours earlier for evaluation of acute nausea, dizziness, blurred vision, slurred speech, ptosis, thick feeling tongue and shortness of breath. So Right, right off the bat, um, we're, we're looking at something that if if they are all eating the same foods, maybe we've got a botulism situation. Two patients developed respiratory failure requiring uh, intubation, mechanical ventilation in the emergency department, and a third patient was intubated at 7 p.m. that evening. Like how I, – I've talked about – um, my fear of botulism multiple times. This is it. Like, how terrible is this situation where you you've eaten something and and with a short period of time, um, and and you you are now like unable to breathe on your own. It's a, a scary, scary toxin. Um, so the combination of cranial nerve palsies and respiratory failure in multiple patients suggested botulism, paralytic illness caused by botulinum neurotoxin. Um, here's where things get kind of, kind of interesting. Approximately 14 hours before arriving at the hospital, the patients had shared a homemade potato salad containing home canned peas. The family's freezer had malfunctions and to preserve some commercially produced frozen peas, one of the patients had home canned the peas one to two weeks before consumption. Um, I'm going to skip forward, um, to, to where things get get kind of exciting for us to talk about. The patient who prepared the home canned peas was a novice home canner. She used a peach preserves recipe with a boiling water technique, replacing the peaches with frozen vegetables. The patient was unaware that low acid foods, e.g. vegetables like the peas, must be canned in a pressure canner rather than a boiling water canner to eliminate botulinum spores. And I would, I, you know, not to edit MMWR, but I would say um, uh, that eliminates probably um, not the word, but an activate is. Um, and Pete Snodder would like that. Uh, after the jars cooled, the patient correctly checked for a jar seal. One of the jars of peas was not sealed, so the patient covered and refrigerated it, and the family consumed the peas in the potato salad. So, um, that's it's not it's not good it's not good clear writing, right? Okay, so uh, so who cares whether they correctly checked for jar seal? Right. What matters is that that after the jars cooled one of the jars was not sealed so the patient covered and refrigerated it but and the and the question that i posted on twitter was um okay so and then and then it's and then it go and then it and then it adds that the usda says uh foods in uns- single unsealed jars what does that even mean but anyway a single an unsealed jar should be stored in the refrigerator and consumed within several days um and yeah, yeah I that, get that that only applies to cans that have been correctly processed. But here's the thing. Seabot does not grow in the refrigerator. So and if it was if it was improperly if it didn't seal and it was refrigerated and they use that in the potato salad, that should not have had botulism in it. So the right. only way so there's a uh, they're 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 communicating a lot of information, but they're not doing it in a way. And again, not to criticize MMWR, but I'm going to criticize MMWR. Um, it's just it's it's not it's not clear what I mean. I I get that they're trying to get they're trying to use this to educate people about proper canning, but 
what we really want to, you can do that somewhere else, right? What I really want to know about is why did this outbreak happen? Because the, the, I think the only way that you could have gotten botulism from those peas would have been if it came from the sealed jar, the, the quote unquote correctly sealed, but improperly canned jar that was stored at room temperature for long enough for a seabot to grow. Uh, yeah. Right. Agreed. Right. So, right. And yeah, and, and is, this is where, um, like we're they're doing a post post event of uh um investigation so how like how did this individual say that it was like knew that it wasn't sealed right, right. like are we really talking about one that had been like the so so you know when when, when we do canning the lids have indentation in them. And one of the, the, the indicators that we know that it's sealed is that that indentation pops, pops down. And so it, so when you open up the jar and the indentation, you know, it pops up, you're like, Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been opened or the seal isn't is broken. But I, I have seen some failures in, in those lids where the indentation doesn't suck down, but the jar has, um, fi- like physically sealed. So, so maybe we've reduced some, some oxygen in there. Um, the vacuum is, has, has, uh, has occurred, but the pop-up didn't like, didn't that failed, but it's still a sealed jar. So that's, that's one thing. What, what I, what we don't know is, uh, the time, uh, between, this canning and, uh, and, and, um, and when they were consumed. Well, it does, it does say in the second paragraph, I was just looking for that. Oh. It says in the second paragraph that one of the patients had home canned the peas one to two weeks before consumption. Before. Okay. Yeah, sorry. So, so 14 hours, uh, after 14 hours before arriving at the hospital, they, they had this, the salad and then the peas were canned one to two weeks before that. So, so let's make it two weeks, right? Yeah. Let's, so let's, or, let's, or whatever, one week. But, it, but I mean, the, the point is, is that, that, okay, so the jars should be consumed within several days, according to the USDA, but, but that is for quality purposes, right? You could, I mean, if there's not, botulism is, is not going to grow in the refrigerator or, or I guess, so what I, what I want to, there's two bits bit of information I want to know. Number one, what was the temperature of the home refrigerator? Right, and number right. two, which peas were used? in the in the the potato salad those those are the relevant questions and then if they had peas left in the jar or they had the jar did they test that for toxin i mean you know that would be good to know too uh so anyway it doesn't really matter i mean the bottom line is we know it was the peas we know they were improperly canned but it's just that 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 uh, uh penultimate paragraph is just really not helpful right 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 and and so let's let's make the let's let's make an assumption of worst case um, scenario, right? And let's say it was two weeks, and let's say that their refrigerator um, temperature was at forty seven degrees Fahrenheit. Are we are we in a a situation where um, we might see? I'm like actually looking at Combase right now. Um, uh, where where we may actually get some some growth, and unfortunately, I think Combase only goes down to fourteen degrees um, Celsius. But even at fourteen de- degrees Celsius, if we look at hours and hours and hours, let's say like five hundred hours, um, I don't think we're gonna get too much growth. Like like I yeah. I, I just can't see how yeah. how this even at a at a very warm fridge. Um, would would be an issue. Now, what could be the situation? Because the time between canning and the time between refrigeration is not in here, 
right? Like, so they, so, so they, it says, um, they noticed that it wasn't sealed, um, uh, but one of the jars was not sealed, but was that noticed a week afterwards and then put right, it in the refrigerator? Right, right. And now we're, now it doesn't matter, right? Like now the refrigeration, it could, we could be in a situation where we've, we've got growth and toxin formation. And even though it didn't seem like it was sealed, it was actually sealed. And that, that may explain this. Right, right, and and yeah, it's so the whole the whole thing is just very confusing. Um, yeah, and I think probably you know it would be does it, does it say what kind of botulism in the article. Uh, it would Doesn't. be yeah. So uh, they tested positive for type A with a silent B. So 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 let's see the a wa- okay here that is a wash from the empty jar that previously held the peas also tested for uh, bot. Uh, a B. So, so probably it was proteolytic. So probably it was the a jar that was uh, not refrigerated. But yeah. So um, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh, different home can vegetables from the same batch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, anyway. Bottom line is like you can't, you can't mess around with um, uh, home canning recipes. You can't just substitute one thing for another, especially if it's peaches which are acidic for peas which are less acidic. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so I did get Combase to like actually show me some growth here, Don. Okay. And so at about you start to see some some growth at about eighty hours at fourteen C, and then um, I'll, I'll send you a little. Well, I don't know if I can send you the link to this. Oh, I, can, I, I got, I got it up. I'll, I'll make this same, yeah. same yeah, uh, yeah. prediction. So I just, so. I just ran it down to like, um, you know, as low as it would go, um, assumed like a, an, a pH of seven and it's probably a little, little higher than that. Yep. Um, but, and lots of water activity. So, so I mean, once you get into like 200, 200 hours, you're looking at a two plus log, um, increase yep. of it. But, but like those for like, but that's at 14, right? Like who's, who's refrigerator is at 14. Yeah. 14 C. I don't know. Yeah. That's well, let's say, well, yeah. And like I said, we could also, we could also do the prediction for non-proteolytic, which will let us go down to a lower temperature, but I, I don't think it was non-proteolytic. Um, yeah. That would surprise me. And, you know, so, but here's another like yeah. interesting, um, to, you know, situation that, um, and you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about this um, as a lead up to our frozen food. This is a frozen pea, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, w- you know, one of the things that that we will talk about is is what you know blanching does to to frozen vegetables and what blanching doesn't do. And and blanching for peas is is necessary for enzyme, um, you know, for stopping enzymes. But it's definitely not going to like inactivate a bot spore. It's not built for that, right? Right. Like so, and and so, can we could we expect to have uh, bot spores on on frozen fresh vegetables, frozen vegetables, fresh meat, frozen meat. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Like, it, yeah, I would the, that that kind of situation wouldn't surprise me. It's not an issue at all until we put it into this, um, you know, environment of a whole bunch of water and uh, low oxygen and the right temperatures. Yeah, I mean, basically, you should assume that every food that you have in your house has bot spores in it, right? Because it because yeah. it, it could. There's no reason. There's no food that that couldn't, except for canned food um, that is. Uh, in uh, you know that, that is in your pantry that's been properly canned that that, that is unlikely to contain Clostridium botulinum spores. Er, everything else will, including including acidified foods uh, that are in your pantry because uh, they might have bot spores that are just not growing because of the acidity. So 
Yeah, yeah. Everything else you should just assume has bot spores in it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let, let me just before we leave this, I reran this for 20 degrees Celsius. So let's say a, a cool ambient temperature. Um, you're looking at a one log increase, one log growth. So that um, you know, assuming we're starting with um, uh, like some. Well, I don't know if, what, what it looks like if we're coming from spores. Um, but assuming that we've got some cells uh, there, we uh, based on their uh, um, starting metric, you're looking at a one one log growth maybe within um, 30, 32 hours. So could we have a situation where we've got something that looks unsealed, they notice the seal even just two or three days later and then put it in the refrigerator? Um, and could you have uh, botoxin? Yeah, ab- Absolutely. Yeah, and remember too that the canning process probably triggers those spores to germinate. So you could actually, you know, um, uh, get rid of the lag time and just assume a physiological state of one. Um, and again, it's a high water activity environment, so you're looking at basically maxing out the population um, within about um, seventy-two hours. So yeah, uh, you're 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 well. Yeah, or yeah, you're you're well. So three days at room temperature, and you've got. Top Toxic peas if there, if there were bot spores there, right at, at, yep. at room temperature. So so absolutely no no problem to to have a problem um, with bot um, from the room temperature peas after just a few days. So yeah, right, right, right. So the the red herring in this uh, in this riddle is that the patient covered and refrigerated it. <laughs> yes, yeah, that 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 yeah. I, I don't <laughs> think that, that yeah, and that's there's no yeah. I don't even yeah. Anyway, whatever. We should we, we should stop speculating but um but 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 yeah well i mean anyway it's 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 i mean i appreciate that they're trying to be exhaustive and give full information but it's not it's not really not really helpful so we're gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna uh to email uh genevieve bergeron the lead author dr dr bergeron okay Uh, good luck with that (laughs) yeah we'll see what we'll see what happens what um what a what an amazing list of uh, authors too. MMWR is is the most collaborative um, uh, journal out there. One, two, three, four. I think there's like twenty six people that that wrote this uh, short note notes from the field. Yep. yep. But good, good job. That's a there's a lot of team of people that are that are working on this. Right? Yeah, well, and yeah, and so and Genevieve, uh, yeah. Genevieve is at CDC. So, uh, but but obviously, a lot of the legwork was probably done by um, you know New York uh, Department of Health. So, yep, yep, cool. Um, all right, so that was so. Let's get to feedback. That was sure. the, yeah. So, uh oh, there's I had a bunch of stuff. Oh. In, What'd you do? I'm sorry. I moved it all. I moved it all. It's all. It's all still there in FST Next copy. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. 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 My my. It like evaporated. I had it all up. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't. You know, the problem is if I don't do it that way, uh, then um, my thing that I send stuff to Dropbox breaks, so I have to preserve the one that has the same name. So. Um, anyway, that made no sense, but let's, let's talk about an X. Ex- so while we're talking about freezing, let's talk about an excellent blanching question. So, um, all right. So this says you can, um, read my message, but not my name. Um, uh, I'm gonna, uh, uh who, who, and the, the person says, um, I'm a longtime listener and fan of the podcast. <laughs> so of course we know love it. They're, love they're it. a listener. <laughs> they got that. Um, we have a few instances, uh, I've had a few instances where I intended to 
to submit feedback or a question, but then life got away and I never did. Also, let's be real, sometimes I'm just lazy. And then this person goes on to write a really long and extensive question. Uh, and so my response is, you are not lazy. Uh, so I'm going to call this listener deep lazy because it's not the message of a lazy person. Um, so... Uh, the person says, uh, your recent discussion on final cook temperature for frozen vegetables is very similar to an issue I've been struggling with for a while. I work with a lot of schools, um, and as the farm-to-school movement grows, many are interested in preserving their school garden or, far, uh, or farm harvest. As you're probably aware, most vegetables should be blanched prior to freezing. Um, the process of blanching and how it fits into the food code throws me for a loop. As I understand it, blanching is placing the food item into boiling water or steam for one to five minutes and then submersion in an ice water bath. And there's reasons for doing that, uh, which don't have anything to do with food safety. It more has to do with improving quality of the frozen food. So um, the question I have is after blanching, are the products considered cooked? As you pointed out in your frozen veggie discussion, according to the FDA model food code, Plant foods cooked for hot holding should be heated to 135 degrees F. Would further heating of these blanched and then thawed frozen vegetables actually be considered reheating, or would they require, or yeah, or would they require them to be hooked, cooked to 165? Or can we ignore the original heat treatment from blanching and just cook them to 135? I love it. And again, she goes on to say, um, or he or she goes on to say, uh, deep lazy, uh, the FDA food code annex uh, 3-401.13 further states that fruits and vegetables that are fresh, frozen, or canned and are heated for hot holding need only to be cooked to the temperature required for hot holding. As the FDA and this and end quote, as the FDA is aware that most frozen or canned plant foods could have possibly undergone some form of heat treatment, it leads me to believe that they would not be considered further cooking to be a reheating process. And then she goes on to say, here's a sample recipe that I'm not sure what to do with. Uh, oh, and then she says uh, comments in red, but I, but the the red, oh, okay. So anyway, so sorry, so, so she, <laughs> she's writing this on the fly. So never mind that. Um, okay, um, corn on the cob. Uh, husk corn removes silks, blah, blah, blah. Um, blanch in boiling water. Uh, small ears, eight minutes. Medium ears, 10 minutes. Large ears, 12 minutes. Uh, what temperature does the corn actually reach during the blanching process? Is there a requirement to reach 135, even though it won't be hot held but frozen? That's her questions to us. Um, Blanching times may vary. Shock by submersion in cold ice, uh, ice cold water. Drain well and freeze immediately upon sheet pans for IQF, individually quick frozen. Once corn is frozen, place into vacuum seal bags. It can be reheated vacuum seal according to manufacturer's recommendations. Uh, I'm aware that at this point they may require a HACCP plan. Label for quality and safety. Uh, guidelines for proper labeling are included in the guidance document that this recipe originates from and which is currently undergoing revision and we'll uh, we'll link to that uh to that uh document as well um when ready to use place the bag in boiling water or steamer to cook to safe safe serving temperature at least 135 as required by the most recent version of the food code um this assumes the blanching process did not count as cooking so this is not considered reheating should this actually read reheat to safe serving temperature at least 165 or if i use the the guy, the annex guidance in my interpretation, would it still only be required to be heated to 135? End of recipe. 
In full disclosure, I've not reached out to FDA for guidance. I thought I would start with here since you were discussing a related topic on a recent podcast. I would be very interested to know if you found some relevant science to back up the food code recommendation. Uh, Thanks uh, uh, for any information and thanks for doing such a fun, informative podcast where we can all think a bit more critically about food safety. That that is not the email of a lazy person. That is honestly the email of a perfectionist, right? And the reason why, why Deep Lazy, why you have not emailed us before is because you wanted to do a real good job, right? And this is common amongst the nerds that I know is that we often procrastinate doing things um, uh, because um, uh, we want to do a really good job. So, um, uh, oh, and I, I mentioned that we would talk about this on the AFI episode, but I think we're just going to talk about it right now since I've already gone to all the trouble of doing that setup. Um, in my opinion, and, and then I'll let you talk, Ben, in my opinion, it all comes down to, to data. If you can prove that your blanching process gives a sufficient log reduction to control pathogens, subsequent, uh, re, uh, it says, I have a typo in my message, but as subsequent reheating is not needed. If you cannot prove it, then it is. Is. Um, and this is exactly the issue that the frozen food industry is facing with respect to listeria control. Um, I, I think part of the problem here is that we use these terms that mean something to us as humans called cooking and blanching. Bacteria don't know about cooking and blanching. They don't know whether they've been blanched or whether they've been cooked. They just know how much time and temperature they've seen. And then in response to that, they grow or they die, right? And so my thought is that th- this this issue arises because we think we think about things in terms of human definitions of freezing and blanching, right? Ultimately, we just need to know the time temperature history of the product. And from that, I can tell you what the risk is and what you need to do. Um, beyond that, um, I mean, we could we could wade into whether the food code definitions for these things need revising. Uh, and then, you know, and I, I, I have for other some other work that I've done, I found that the information in the in the annex, and I have to be careful about this because somebody quoted back my comment about the annex to me as <laughs> yeah. being uh, bogus. It's not necessarily bogus or, or incorrect. It's uneven, right? There's stuff in the annex that's good. There's stuff in the annex that was good at the time it was written, but things have changed since then, so it needs to be changed. And there's stuff in the annex that is not really well sourced or well thought out. So, yeah, the, the code, the code, the code is pretty is pretty. Uh, uh, it's un, uh, as unambiguous as code can be. It might not be correct, but it's but it is what it is. The annex is, like I said, it's it's just a more variable um, document that that probably needs some some over hall in places. So anyway, that's my long ramble on this uh, message. Yeah. And, and so the, the only thing I'm going to add to this, I, I don't think we have an answer um, for, for deep lazy, like, and cause, and I think there's, there's two, uh, there's a couple, a couple of things. Um, there's not, not a whole lot of data out there on uh, Blanching's impacts on pathogens, and I'm, I sent you a link yep. uh, for show notes. But probably the best thing that's out there is a Journal of Food Protection um, article from 2017 that um, uh, some of some of our friends uh, of the podcast are, are part of. Uh, this is uh, entitled "Thermal Inactivation of uh, Listeria Monocytogenes and Salmonella During Water and Steam Blanching of Vegetables." And and so this one has nothing to do with corn. First of all, um, and so that gives us a bit of a limitation. We're looking at peas, spinach, broccoli, potatoes, and carrots. Um, it's not about corn on the cob, mm-hmm. um, but what it does say, and and this is as I looked at the recipe, um, the um, the recipe says husk the corn, remove the silk, um, blanch in boiling water or a steamer. 
right? Well, this this article um, uh, from Salan and and uh, colleagues, including Garen, um, demonstrates that there is a difference with these other products between hot water, boiling water. This this wasn't even boiling water. This is hot water at eighty five to eighty seven Celsius, and steam up to ninety six Celsius, where water is it seems to be better. Um, at, um, at, at five log reduction. So, so right there, just the process, it seems, seems higher from a temperature standpoint, but it doesn't have the same efficacy as water. And that has to do, you know, I think with, um, like conduction versus convection and air as an insulator and all that kind of stuff. Um, and evaporation as soon as it hits the, um, the, the corn or other, not in this case, all the other, all those other vegetables. Um, but the, the, the bigger question to me, Don though, is the 135 versus 165, right? So, so we're looking at hot holding versus, um, versus service. What, What's the difference between 135 and 165 in in your mind from a from pathogens that we might see associate that we might worry about with frozen foods? I, I right like at 135, I'm going to get my um, at 135 in the in the food, I'm going to get a a significant log reduction of listeria if that's what I'm worried about here in um, in these frozen foods. I don't think there's a difference. Um, from a risk standpoint between 135 and 165 for, for these, right? Like you, you don't think there's a difference. I don't think that there is like what, what's my, and this is, we have to go back to, to com base here, but what, what kind of log reduction of listeria am I going to get in com, in a corn on the cob at 135 and how different is that at that 165? I don't think it's that much different. Oh no, at 165, um, instantaneous, you've got multiple log reductions. Right, but at one thirty-five, don't I have multiple log reductions as well? I don't think so. Okay, um, I don't think so. I think it is more um, it is more more temperature sensitive. Um, so let's look at thermal inactivation in combase yes. for listeria, <laughs> uh, and then we got to do the math. So what is what's one thirty-five? Uh, that I can help you with. Thirty-five <laughs> F. And see, this is the kind of stuff we could do in the webinar. Uh, 57.2. Okay. So, so 57.2. So that's below, uh, that's below, um, uh, what Combase has. So Combase okay. goes from 60 to 68 for Listeria and All right, let's put it at 60. So, so if we put it in at 60, the D value is one minute. So that's in one minute, you have a one log reduction. Okay. Um, and then if you go to 68, um, now it, you have a one log reduction in 0 0.05 minutes. So what, what's 68 in Fahrenheit? 68 C in F is, um, uh, 154. Right. So at 154, it's a fraction of a minute. It's 0 0.06 minutes. So there's a huge difference between 135 and even 154. Okay. So, yeah. so, so yeah, so I would say, uh, well, and then and the other question that you have to ask with this, with this particular recipe. So it sounds like the corn is blanched on the cob, but then there's a, seems to be a step missing from the recipe where the corn is removed from the cob. Is that, am I, am I, am I missing? I don't something? think so. No, no. I think it's they're frozen they're, on the cob. Yeah. Frozen on the cob. Yeah. Okay. Um, that, that's what I 
and, and it, there is a um, drain well uh, and freeze immediately on sheet pans. Yeah, so um, that's I think it's just sticking all right. Out. But it talks yeah. about IQF. Well, IQF the cob is uh, okay. is, is, that, is the eye. Right. Yeah, all right. So, but I mean, honestly, I think. I mean, and again, you have to think about how you do this experiment, right? So, all right, so I'm going to get put, so probably the listeria is going to be on the outside of the corn. I guess we could do some experiments where we we inject listeria into the corn, but then those cobs are going to be leaky, right? Um, And they're going to potentially leak the listeria out into the water. Um, So, I I mean, I've got to think that all of this process for salmonella or for listeria putting it in boiling water for between eight and 12 minutes, it's going to be essentially free of pathogens. I, so, I, would think I so. mean, cause yeah, granted, so, yeah. I mean, the surface is boiling water. Now it's going to take a while for that heat to penetrate, but most of the contamination is going to be on the surface. So I, you know, I don't think this is a particularly risky recipe. I agree. From my point of view. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the, and I guess the thing is what, what I, like if we look at this whole thing, and maybe I should have been a little more clear, the difference between reheating to 135 and 165 after following this recipe, I don't think matters very much. Like right, like right, that, uh, yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's going to be fully cooked, and so you're at this point, in my opinion, you would be reheating for quality, right? Yeah, and and it, so let's say there's some post blanch contamination of this uh, of these cobs, right? Right, and during the 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 cooking process, getting up to 135, hold, even if we hold it for one minute, which would not be out of the ordinary just from a service standpoint, we're, we're getting a, a similar log reduction than if we were cooking it up to 155. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I, like that's, that's yeah. what I'm, yeah, that's where I'm, where I'm coming at it. I don't, so I, 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 I think the, the blanch process, as long as that, and the, I mean, this goes back to your, your overall answer. Um, the blanch process on a cob of corn is really what we don't have a good, uh, you know, uh, idea on, but if it's anything similar to what we would see in the individual, you know, things from that, um, from that paper that I, that I mentioned, um, we're, we're, we're probably like, as you said, pretty close to pathogen free, um, by the time we are doing our freezing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but this is an interesting one, right? Because I really appreciate Deeply Lazy's question because it it is like as she describes it, it is not clear in the food code how to handle this. <laughs> like the food, <laughs> yeah, code, yeah. The food code was not built for this. Yes, but but this is happening, right? Um, and and it's and and I I really agree with your your comment on the on the annex. Um, there it, it it also like if you, if you look at the um, first page of the food code where it talks about um, previous editions of the code including annex you know we're going from multiple iterations every couple of years through CFP things get added to the annex things don't usually get pulled out of there and it's yep. patchwork together over time yep. um, and so there's some some vestigial stuff that's in there. That you know, like you said, needs to be updated or revisited. But that's not a real sexy CFP issue. Well, and and in fact, this came up because somebody had a question about about changing the annex. And my my, and I I don't I don't have this fact at my fingertips, but I believe that the annex you you cannot submit a CFP issue to fix the annex. The annex is controlled and monitored uh, and edited by FDA. And so, what you can do is you can you can change things in the code. 
and you can suggest that something be added to the annex, but I, I don't believe you can go in and make edits to the annex through through the conference for food protection. I, do, I don't believe that's allowed. I, that's that's a really we yeah. So and I'll when we did our um, our um, CFP um, the issue a couple of years ago for cleaning up vomit. Um, I think the discussion, so we put an issue in saying, Hey, put this, you know, um, amend the code to this. And then the committee, it like said, we will like, we edited it down, made a recommendation to amend the code, you know, slightly to say written, um, the procedures for vomit cleanup. But then the recommendation, if I remember correctly, also said, and add these things to the annex. Right. So, so you're like, I, I think you're right that you can't start the issue that way, but the, the, the council can make that, make that recommendation. Right. 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 You know well, and, yeah. and, but again, remember that the, the, both the code and the, the conference for food protection is only advisory to the FDA. Right. So, so yeah. ultimately they can do whatever they want. Uh, ultimately if they see something they don't like, they can get it extracted during the, the delegate process. And even if it passes through the delegate process, they can just basically not do it or they can, you know, slow walk it, uh, or back burner it <laughs> if they want. Cause they're FDA. And, and again, they're, they're, you know, the, the conference is advisory to them. So, so they can they can, ultimately they can do whatever they want and and yeah and I, so I I found out about this when I was doing some stuff for um, uh, Jetro Restaurant Depot on um, the paper that that I published um, working for them and basically the annex had a bunch of information about computer models and it just made a bunch of statements that were totally wrong that said uh, there there are computer models out there but they don't handle changing time temperature conditions and I'm like yeah they do Combase like at the time you wrote this PMP didn't do that but now there's Combase and Combase definitely handles so yep. changing time temperature conditions so but but it's we just not, did it we yeah did. <laughs> we just, <laughs> except, well well for the yeah but we and we could have done fluctuating time temperatures for for Seabot in the earlier example. So yeah, yeah. So I just sent you a yep. text um, that I want you to link to from my 2016 issue that I um, that I led um, because I every once in a while I just get kind of excited that um, that something that came out of a project that I was part of and then I try to usher through the process ended up uh, like actually amending the food code. So this is me and my group amended section 250111 to indicate the procedures for the cleanup of vomiting and diarrheal events for employees to follow shall be written. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Cuz before before you could have you had a you could have a policy. You had to have a policy but it didn't have to be written down. Yeah. And now now it gives something so so one of the the feedback uh pieces that that started this um this whole um process was uh, as a environmental health specialist, if you went into uh, um, a restaurant and went through their employee health policy, which had to you know had to be written, um, and they said, okay, so if you have a you know a vomit event, diarrheal event, um, what how how do you handle this? They couldn't really evaluate it or inspect for it. They just you know the 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 um, the you know person in charge would say yes we have a policy and they could say oh well then you're in compliance with the um w- with the food code and now they actually have to have something that is written and the uh um inspector can can look at it and make a uh, a call on whether they think that it is actually c- collect you know quote written uh and complete cool so yeah yeah so it was but i, I it is like th- this is uh that's the only time that i've actually made a sausage 
Nice. Well, I have, I've been unsuccessful to date um, because apparently FDA is just uncomfortable with the idea that um, we not tell people to wash their hands um, in water of a certain temperature. So, But it's okay. Um, I've, <laughs> I'm actively engaged in the CFP process, and, and I'm very proud of some guidance documents that have been accepted. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's even part of that. Yeah. Uh, so we wrote some things that, that are out there for people to use if they want. They're, they're only guidance, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. I went back. Um, I just sent you the actual like edited document that made it to the recommendation. Uh, this was one that we had. Uh, uh, so this is just moment for interest sake. And it says uh, um, we started with add this to 250111 in the code. And then uh, the vote was added to the annex. And you'll see in the in, in the uh, track changes, expand the annex 250111, clean up vomiting, diarrheal um, events to provide guidance for written procedures. And then here are the things that are now in the annex cool so so it started with we wanted it in the code and then it, um the recommendation became let's put it in the annex yep yeah and so now uh hopefully that's that's i won't check but hopefully it's in the annex so i think it is yeah. i don't know and 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 so we'll we'll mention so we'll, we'll link to this F- fda page um it's not it's not possible to pull out specific issues for ben's issue uh, specific points but you can just go to that fda page and just search for the word vomit and you'll find <laughs> you'll find all the relevant information <laughs> search the word vomit uh cool all right well what else we got for uh for feedback what do you want to what do you want to talk about well um can, we will be recording again in uh, next week, so we can keep some of this. Yeah, and and we may need to roll them over because we're we're already more than an hour and a half in, and we got a lot more listener feedback that we haven't got to. So, um, well, let's let's take it in reverse chronological order. So this one uh, this one comes from a listener that who's a previous list, a previous. Uh, um, uh, um, um, messenger, a previous sender of messages. Um, uh, but we're going to call him deep stack this time. Uh, so he says, uh, good morning. Thank you for giving me a new perspective on food safety. I, I always, I think this is a repeat, uh, 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 contactor, uh, emailer. Uh, I always enjoy learning how the world works and food safety talk has been very eye opening in that regard. Uh, don't feel obligated to talk about this or on the show or respond. <laughs> That's okay. We're going to do it. Um, uh, regarding the safety of citrus fruit at the bar, mentioned in FST 176 and 177, my spouse's new favorite drink is a swirl of sangria and frozen margarita. Floating on top is a peel from half of a lime that has been hollowed out, inverted, and filled with with tequila. The inner face of the peel is in contact with the margarita and sangria, the outer face with tequila. The restaurant's site pictures a similar drink where the lime peel is... The lime peel is filled with Grand Marnier, and we will link to that. Um, uh, The fact that patrons are drinking beverages that have touched both the inside and the outside of the peel piqued my food safety curiosity. Does the presence of alcohol on both surfaces help mitigate risk? Uh, I see the authors of, quote, microflora on restaurant beverage beverage lemon slices has a similar question. The lime peel isn't touching the drinks for more than a few minutes, so maybe that cuts way down on the likelihood of transmitting anything. Is the 
is the fruit used to make sangria likely is the riskiest component since most of the time does the wine kill off most of the baddies? Have a great day. And then I have to say, this is great. Um, PPS, pedantic postscript, not worth reading on the air, even off. Too late. We're going to read it. Uh, Dr. Don mentioned popping something onto the stack. But if you want to be technically correct, popping is the removal of the most <laughs> recently added element. If you want to add something to the stack, you push it. Push it to the stack. Push it to the stack. Gory, gory detail. A stack is an ordered collection of elements in a last in, in, in last in first out semantics. Think of a dish dispenser like this one. He has a link. You can push the dish to the top, but you can't take the top. But you, you can add a dish to the stock. Add a dish to the top, push. You can take a dish off the top, pop, but you can't add or remove a dish anywhere else in the sequence. And yes, so so uh, last in, first out is familiar to me because in food safety practices, it is a bad practice. For food safety, in, you first want out. first in, yep. first out. So we we in the food safety world are familiar with stacks or, or whatever type of data structures you want, but the data structures that we like to use are first in, first out because that's best for quality. So... Anyway, um, so actually, you, what you really want is you want an integrated time temperature data, and so you have um, first in uh, uh, most likely to spoil out, <laughs> so that you're you're popping off the least shelf life. Uh, popping, did I get that right? Popping, uh, yes, popping off. Pop, I'm going to be pop, pop, don't pop, pop, don't push. Pop uh, I gotta, I will, you want to pop off the thing that is uh, most close to the end of its shelf life uh, uh, for that for that customer. But of course, that people um, you know dig through to find the the date in the back um so that that doesn't always work but anyway um so uh, but i but yes. i want to i want to like uh highlight and this is where i think you got in trouble a little bit last time with deep stack um <laughs> if if we're doing things i don't think you can do uh, uh fifo um if you're using a stack it's always going to be uh, oh like, yeah uh, that's the nature of a, di- a stack of dishes right? stack. yeah yeah, yeah. You're, you're not uh, you have to so, yeah. Yeah, you have you have to do uh, you have to do it. Oh, and speaking of which, this is a bad practice in food service, and I and I, I talked to our sanitarian about this recently because I saw this going on in a Rutgers facility uh, where they were re- that you know you have the, the the cold holding items out on the uh, for service, and they just were filling up the top and not and not taking and so so basically the stuff in the bottom was just perennially on the bottom. So that's not that's not a good practice. That's not good at all. No, you need to take the stuff off the bottom, put it on fresh, and then if you want to reuse the old stuff, put it on top of the on the top of the fresh. Um. Yeah. So 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 it's last in. Uh, for, or so it's first in, first out. So so my, so that was a very long question. I have very little feedback. Um. Uh. So alcohol does reduce the risk. Uh, the fruit used to make the sangria does pose some risk. Uh, wine is antimicrobial, but less so than tequila. Um. And 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 th- and please 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 do email us with all of uh, the computer stuff we get wrong. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Because we're not. I I don't, almost know nothing about computers. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And, and so, but like, I, I mean, I, the only thing, um, th- that I'll, I'll add, I think you're, you're funneling to this, but I think this whole process is pretty low, low risk. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Cool. 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 All right. Um, uh, just, uh, popping stuff off our stack here. No, <laughs> not doing that at all. You know why? Cause we're doing it from, uh, we're doing first in first out. Exactly. Uh, um, okay. This, is, <laughs> this one's awesome. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, this is this is from someone who emailed us, but we will protect uh, 
um, uh, uh, protect it. Um, it's uh, deep, deep space uh, feedback. Um, regarding uh, Food Safety Talk 177, I only listened to the lead part. My memory is that you're not is that you're not familiar with current methods of determining lead contents, and you were unsure if the me- if the ways to measure lead in drinking water would work for lead in distilled spirits. It's been a couple of decades since I've operated in an atomic absorption machine, but it is difficult for me to imagine that an ethanol water solution could not be analyzed for atomic absorption or by an atomic absorption machine. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, deep, deep Space uh, gave us uh, gave me a, a name, Mark Edwards at Virginia Tech, would be up on current practices. And that was the same person who um, uh, our friend of the show, Renee Boyer, mentioned um, I should talk to about my bourbon-led uh, uh, situation. Uh, and then on the blog post, um, uh, I saw that you listed MSG in Chinese restaurant sy- syndrome. I can't remember where I read it, but at least one source attributed adverse reactions of patrons to a restaurant meal to the fact that the restaurant was using fugu fish instead of whatever fish was uh, name was on the menu. A bad reaction to fugu probably wasn't psychosomatic, even if the customers thought it was from MSG. Um, and then uh, thanks for producing the blog. So thanks for from Deep Space. Yeah, thanks for listening to our blog. Yes. Thanks for uh, reading the reading podcast. Reading our podcast. <laughs> uh, oh, so, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to go into washing money. Washing money. La- not yeah. laundering money. That's a different not, podcast. Uh, that's a different <laughs> podcast. That's uh, all the president's monies. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So we talked in episode 177 about um, microbes in currency. Um, and this comes from uh, Deep Money. Um, uh, deep money says, uh, your discussion of microorganisms on currency in episode 177 reminded me of a story my late mother-in-law shared with me. She worked as a nursery maid for a wealthy English family after world war II. One of her tasks was to wash any money that was going to be handled by the children in the house. This included ironing of the paper money. Fantastic. Um, I guess this made sense in pre-vaccine era where you took any and all precautions to keep children safe. But as far as I know, she didn't do this for my husband and his brother. <laughs> so uh, good. And uh, I guess the laundering of, uh, you know, I guess the laundering of currency of, of shillings and, and, and coin pounds that you might carry in your, in your pocket would, uh, would do something if there was uh, a pathogen there. Um, and uh, maybe the ironing would, uh, would bake out the uh, uh, pathogens that, that are also on, on the money. It seems like the uh, money is pretty low risk in the first place. Yeah, pretty low risk. But I mean, I, you know, I guess if you're a posh uh, English family, um, you know, and you can ha- afford to have a person on staff to wash the money for the children, <laughs> why not? Wash the money for the children. Don't forget to wash that money. Oh my gosh. <laughs> great story. We have nothing to add other than what a great story. Our listeners are so great. So thank you for that. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, hey, you want to talk a little bit about uh, gluten-free, um, uh, gluten-free flour? And whether there's um, there's like a food safety risk with it, I, I sure do. So so this is um, something that comes to us via Twitter. Uh, it comes to us uh, from um, uh, Squirrel Chomp on Twitter, which is a, a great Twitter name. Um, and basically, um, uh, she says uh, she's her question is about, uh, and I I, I I guess I've 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 I've, I've screenshotted the uh, the Twitter, but I don't have the f- the full message. But the the question is basically about um, uh, if you have gluten free. F- so we've talked about before 
food safety um, for flour? And if, what if you wanted to make some raw cookie dough and eat it? Um, uh, and, 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 and we talked about, you know, there's a YouTube recipe out there, uh, which seemed kind of bogus to me, but we've actually validated it in my laboratory and it seems to be work pretty well, at least for, you know, small quantities, you know, thin layers of flour in a, in a home oven. It uh, does seem to give some, um, reduction in the, the concentration of pathogens, um, that would give you a five log reduction over time. And the person, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, Twitter person, squirrel chomp, uh, basically says, um, would this same process work for gluten-free flour? And then uh, well, what we will link to is a information on uh, gluten-free flour and what it is and where it comes from. Uh, but basically the idea is that, yes, I mean, gluten-free, I mean, so, so, so one question is what's the risk from gluten-free flour? And of course there's lots of different kinds of flour out there that can be gluten-free, but basically the idea is that, that stuff that, that could be substituted for gluten-free, that that could constitute gluten-free flour, are essentially sourced from materials that pose the same risks as flour. So whether it is uh, rice, whether it's tapioca, whether it's sorghum, potato, garbanzo, buckwheat... um, all of those are, I would, in the absence of, of additional data, are you would consider essentially the same risk in terms of wheat. We don't, we still don't know how wheat gets contaminated. I assume that it's contaminated because it's found in the in the world, out in the wild, and there's animal poop and stuff out and, and contaminated water out in the wild. So. The the bottom line is if you I mean there 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 we we haven't seen outbreaks from gluten free raw consumption of raw gluten free flour but I suspect that the reason why we haven't seen that is just because these products are not widely consumed and that we're going to see outbreaks first in foods that eat, people eat a lot of like wheat flour like romaine lettuce like tomatoes etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, yeah in this particular case um, the risks I would propose in the absence of additional information to convince me otherwise the risks are the same and the control measures are the same as well. And thanks to, thanks to squirrel chomp for, uh, for the message. Yeah. And, and the, the only thing that I would, um, uh, say, I don't know how, um, like on a commercial, uh, standpoint that the gluten is, um, is removed and then redoed. Yeah. Well, so, so this was one of the things that she she kind of corrected. I assumed that that, that it was wheat flour that the gluten had been extracted from. It's not really, it's not, it's, it's not that you're extracting the, the, the gluten from the wheat flour. You're just using some other kind of thing as the, as the flour. I I think if if I'm understanding it correctly. Well, I think there's two ways to do it. I think you actually can extract the wheat um, as, gluten, as well, yeah. or the gluten, the gluten from the wheat. Um, and it has to do with the, the gluten, um, basically will dissolve in water. And so you're ah, using, okay. you can use but, water. But it's, yeah. So, so regardless, like if, if you're, um, if you're going down this path of, uh, of, um, purchasing gluten free flour, that's not wheat or this other process, it's, there's not a, um, there's not a heat treatment of it. In fact, the water from, I, I found a couple of different, um, ways like, and I don't know how realistic these are. It's like, how is gluten extracted from, from flour? Um, and a like Google, um, uh, piece, but basically it is, um, it, it's rinsed out. And so from wheat. And so if you were, um, it, it, without any heat, it probably is not inactivating any of the, um, any pathogens. It's probably not making it any worse, but it's probably not making it any better. 
Okay, right, right. That's kind of basically what I can find because it sits. I, I just don't know how they like. And this this is more of like a food chemistry question. Right. In some of these situations, it sounds like you have to make a dough and then rinse the gluten out, and then you take that dough and you make it back in flour. Right. <laughs> I don't know how that. Right. I don't know how that works. Yeah. That's like going backwards. Uh, yeah. That would, yeah. Uh, so, if anybody knows a little more about that, we would love some more, um, uh, some more follow up. Yeah, and this this one this one also comes from um, uh, a frequent uh, messenger and person of many many different names, uh, who whose current nickname I've forgotten. Uh, but here we'll 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 call him Deep Cake. Uh, this is uh, a link uh, to uh, a Twitter post, uh, which is the way that Mitt Romney. Um, gets uh, uh, puts out the candles on his birthday cake, um, and it, it. I won't spoil it for you. Uh, you should look. We'll we'll post. We'll make post a link to the the Twitter post, um, uh, and 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 you can watch uh, Mitt Romney um, put out his birthday candles in a way that keeps saliva off his birthday cake. It's it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. And just remember, as you're watching it, he's also wearing funny underwear because <laughs> he's a Mormon. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, he is. Um, that makes it slightly more funny if you think about it. It's true. It's true. Well, I think you know we've been at this a couple hours. I think we better uh, we better save some of this feedback for for another time. All right. So we will save all the uh, top of the stack feedback. Uh, uh, we we will we will we will we will push that. Uh, we'll pop we'll pop it next time. Pop it. Um, push it. <laughs> pop it and push it. That sounds like a uh, uh, what's that song? What's that group? Um, Oh, the Daft Punk. Black Eyed Peas? No, oh, Daft, Daft Punk. Daft Punk, pushing and push popping. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, All right. Well, um, go to the the, uh, the thing that we do on the internet, our podcast page, uh, and uh, leave us feedback, email us, all that good stuff. Um, Don, as always, uh, it's a pleasure talking with you. I've fully woken up over my um, my 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 two hour um, uh, coffee uh, break with you. It was great. So I will uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Um, hey, so I have a phone call that starts now. Oh, no. Um, I'm so sorry. But, no, it's okay. But we're already scheduled. Okay. So yes. Oh, yeah. If we just yeah. need to do the scheduling after the AFI yeah. one, but that'll be fine.
That'll be easy. And then you've got this one. And I took, I sent you to wash the money and um, pushing and popping. Cool. Uh, as potentials. I captured a few earlier on too. Okay, cool. 